Warning, binge mode contains adult content. It does. But we're going to have to move past that right now because this is going to be a long one, fellas and ladies and everybody. So if you're not here for adult content, please check out one of the other great podcasts on the Ringer Podcast Network. Why not Dantasy Football with the Dannys? Get some advice on how to replace Matt Ryan. Yeah. One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why it's time to start shouting, protect Buckbeak. Oh, awful. Terrible. Please proceed with extreme caution. And now Binge Mode. Am I to understand, said Phineas Nigelus slowly from Harry's left, that my great-great-grandson, the last of the Blacks, is dead? Yes, Phineas, said Dumbledore. I don't believe it, said Phineas brusquely. Harry turned his head in time to see Phineas marching out of his portrait and knew he had gone to visit his other painting in Grimald Place. He would walk, perhaps, from portrait to portrait, calling for Sirius through the house. Harry, I owe you an explanation, said Dumbledore. An explanation of an old man's mistakes, for I see now that what I have done and not done with regard to you bears all the hallmarks of the failings of age. Youth cannot know how age thinks and feels, but old men are guilty if they forget what it was to be young, and I seem to have forgotten lately. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Mm. Mm. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Oh, great website. <laughs> Joining me today. Yeah. <laughs> now that he's finished thrashing through Dumbledore's office. I'm bringing all this stuff. I don't even know what it is. What does this little thing do? <laughs> it's Ringer staff writer and your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Yes, Mal. By all means, I'll continue destroying his possessions. He has too many of them. Because it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you're a portrait that pretends to snooze, or one that can't help but interject, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points, five stars for Binge Mode. Also, what about Twitter and Instagram, folks? Why not follow us there at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore? And why not join our Facebook group or request to join it? Because it's the place for binge mode fans and an excellent place to help Luna find her missing possessions. Also, stop hiding Luna's shit. Please stop hiding Luna's That's shit. That's fucking rude. Why People are pick so on mean. Luna anyway? People are so mean. It's unnecessary. Yesterday... On Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how recklessness shapes mm. chapters 34 through 36 of Order of the Phoenix. And there were, there were tears. Not going to lie to you. There were tears. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 37 and 38, the yes. conclusion of the fifth book in this epic saga, the brilliant conclusion. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep. Details from all seven books and eight films and the wider mm, Potter canon. Yeah. 
Taking the entire series into account from the moment the slowly revolving form of Sybil Trelawney sinks back into the silver mass. Shouts to my gal, the great, (laughs) great granddaughter of someone who could really do that seeing shit. Shouts to Cassandra. That at least gets you in the door for an interview, (laughs) which is pretty great. So take your hand off the doorknob, grab a seat, because it's time to head to deep misery and despair, let's be honest. Mal, you are not nearly as angry with me as you ought to be. It's my fault that it's time to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in order. Only these two chapters, 37 and 38, so let's climb aboard the Scarlet Steam Engine and plot the Hogwarts Express. Choo-choo! Harry is back in Dumbledore's office, and he is in anguish. He can't stop thinking about the hole in his heart where Sirius should be. Dumbledore returns, and Harry takes out his anger on the headmaster, trashing his office, trying and failing to storm out, and refusing to engage in Dumbledore's attempts at conversation. Eventually, though, Harry sits, and Dumbledore explains everything, asterisk, almost Except for that last thing. Definitely some stuff, (laughs) including why he's been ignoring Harry, what the prophecy says, and why he's kept it a secret for all these years. Harry learns that either he or Voldemort will kill the other in the end. Kind of a big deal. (laughs) The rest of the term continues, and none of the students who went with Harry to the ministry suffer lasting physical damage from the fight, thank God. Harry learns from nearly headless Nick that Sirius will have, quote, gone on rather than return as a ghost, and a chat with Luna leaves him feeling, if not happy, at least more calm than he has since the battle. Oh, my God. Already getting emotional, and we're just doing the summary. The gang takes the Hogwarts Express back home for the summer. Mad-Eye Moody threatens Uncle Vernon to make sure that Harry doesn't suffer over the break, lest something magical happen again on Privet Drive. Jason, the fact that you can feel pain like this is your greatest podcasting strength. Thanks. (laughs) Makes me feel so much better. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 37 and 38 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is remorse. Chapter 37, The Lost Prophecy. Honest failure. That's what makes the end of order so gut-wrenchingly effective. Everyone did their best, and yet it all went so tragically wrong. Harry arrives in Dumbledore's office via the headmaster's off-the-books port key, and the contrast between the peaceful confines of Dumbledore's office and the chaotic, deadly scene Harry just left is disorienting. The delicate instruments self-repairing following Dumbledore's showdown with Fudge, the gently snoozing or pretending to snooze portraits, dawn just beginning to break outside the window, the very rising of the sun seems to contradict Harry's reality from the book. The silence and stillness broken only by the occasional grunt or snuffle of a sleeping portrait was unbearable to him. If his surroundings could have reflected the feelings inside him, the pictures would have been screaming in pain. He doesn't want to think about what's transpired, but, quote, there's no escape. Harry's remorse is so raw, so excruciating that it almost transcends the word and its synonyms. He's fundamentally wounded. Sirius is gone, dead, his friends injured, and he thinks it's all his fault. His mind frantically searches for some way that this could not be the case, and he can't find it. Sirius is dead, and from the book, if he, Harry, had not been stupid enough to fall for Voldemort's trick, if he had not been so convinced that what he had seen in his dream was real, 
If he had only opened his mind to the possibility that Voldemort was, as Hermione had said, banking on Harry's love of playing hero. In mere pages, Dumbledore will ask Harry to shoulder the weight of the wizarding world. But in this moment, Harry doesn't even feel that he can shoulder his own grief. Every loss leaves a mark for any of us. For Harry, who has lost so much and so many already, and who feels his own culpability pulling him like a riptide under the crushing weight of his own misery, Sirius's death feels like a burden too impossible to bear. Remember what Dumbledore will tell Harry in King's Cross in Hallows. Quote, Do not pity the dead, Harry. Pity the living, and above all, those who live without love. Sirius allowed Harry to live with love. And when he fell through the veil, he pulled Harry's belief, his very sense of self, with him. Quote, it was unbearable. He would not think about it. He could not stand it. There was a terrible hollow inside him he did not want to feel or examine. A dark hole where Sirius had been, where Sirius had vanished. He did not want to have to be alone with that great silent space. He could not stand it. It's incredible writing. Then... Phineas Nigelus's portrait wakes. Nigelus, blissfully unaware of the evening's events just for a little while longer, carries on his petty roasting of Harry. Ah, Harry Potter, this office is supposed to be barred to all but the rightful headmaster, or has Dumbledore sent you here? Oh, don't tell me. He gave another shuddering yawn. Another message for my worthless great-great-grandson. Harry cannot bring himself to speak in reply to this, much less tell Phineas that Sirius is gone. Quote, to say it aloud would be to make it final, absolute, irretrievable. One of Harry's most admirable traits is that he rarely lies to himself. He harps on mm -hmm. false hope, yes. He falls prey to bias, yes. He struggles to escape the grasp of his own stubbornness with regularity. But when the truth comes before him, naked and clear, he rarely looks away. It is, in so many ways, the only thing that he really wants, that he's ever really asked for. Even when the truth gleaned from a memory in a basin in an empty office where he's heard so many lies before, means accepting that he's not meant to live. But Sirius's death, that's a truth he cannot bear. That's a reality he cannot speak into existence. More portraits are waking up now. One asks Harry if his presence means Dumbledore, who the portraits clearly revere, will be returning soon. This is quotidian chit-chat with the portraits carrying on as if nothing has happened when, for Harry, everything has changed. His whole world is different, and it's just too much. From the book, Dumbledore thinks very highly of you, as I'm sure you know, one of the portraits tells him. Oh, yes, holds you in great esteem. Hearing this causes Harry's guilt to consume him. He can't hear praise, not now. He tries to leave, thinking only of escape, as if he could somehow escape what's happened tonight. But the door's locked from the book. Harry could not stand this. He could not stand being Harry anymore. He had never felt more trapped inside his own head and body, never wished so intensely that he could be somebody, anybody else. The only way not to feel his pain is to not be him. Green flames in the fireplace announce Dumbledore's return. He places the newly reborn fox on his perch and addresses his aching pupil. Well, Harry, said Dumbledore, finally turning away from the baby bird, you will be pleased to hear that none of your fellow students are going to suffer lasting damage from the night's events. These are striking first words. On the one hand, they speak to Dumbledore's compassion. He knows that Harry is melting into himself over Sirius's death and knows he's tearing into himself into pieces over what might have happened to his friends. 
And Dumbledore cares about those students too deeply. But it's also an instant reminder of the damage Harry did, of, yes. the, of the peril his decisions wrought. Dumbledore finally looking at him, but from the book, Harry could not bear to meet his eyes. For so long, Dumbledore has exuded a grandfatherly infallibility, immensely powerful, but matched by immense wisdom. Not just a mentor, but something like a Superman. He's been largely absent, it's true, particularly in this book, which is on purpose, as we're about to discover. Besides that, though, he's appeared as the embodiment of every positive trait we could possibly ascribe to a man of his age and his position. And we've never seen him this human and this vulnerable. The way he's about to be here trying to unburden himself to Harry Potter, the student who he has so utterly and completely failed. Voldemort played Harry for a fool, but he never should have been able to. Dumbledore offers an olive branch across the divide between them. A divide that he created and maintained. I know how you are feeling, Harry, said Dumbledore very quietly. No, you don't, said Harry. His voice was suddenly loud and strong. White-hot anger leapt inside him. Dumbledore knew nothing about his feelings. As we will learn in time, that is far from the truth. Dumbledore has experienced not only the anguish of losing loved ones, but the torment of knowing that he bore some of the blame. Mm. But that's just one more thing that Harry doesn't know. One more thing that Dumbledore hasn't told him. What if Harry did know? Would he find solace in that shared understanding? Maybe. It's certainly nice to think so. But pain is isolating, and Harry's is an irrepressible and electric force. Dumbledore tries initially to put Harry's torment in a larger context, telling him in a calm manner that enrages Harry, that there's no shame, that in fact, feeling this much is Harry's greatest strength. Quote, Harry, suffering like this proves you are still a man. This pain is part of being human. This is ultimately the heart of what separates Harry from Voldemort, his ability to love and his ability to feel when that love is torn away. But right now, it feels like Dumbledore is functionally speaking a different language. Mm -hmm. Then I don't want to be human, Harry roared, and he seized one of the delicate instruments from the spindle-legged table beside him and flung it across the room. Harry is on fire. He doesn't want to hear that flames forge the steel. He just needs to stop burning. Soon Dumbledore will explain how his mistakes are those of old age. He forgot how it felt to have everything in front of him. Without the map of experience to guide his decisions, Dumbledore has lived a lifetime with his pain and regret over the events which led to his sister's death, and those wounds never go away. But Harry is feeling the full impact of this kind of calamity for the first time. His godfather died in front of him, maybe an hour ago, maybe less, and he believes that it is his fault. Harry continues to rage. Dumbledore makes no move to stop him as Harry destroys his possessions. You care so much, you feel as though you will bleed to death with the pain of it, he says. And he's able to say this because he knows this is what he felt like when he lost his sister, Ariana. You have now lost your mother, your father, and the closest thing to a parent you have ever known. Of course you care. Harry needs to escape still, but the door is locked and Dumbledore won't let him go. Not until I've had my say. Harry isn't interested. Dumbledore could have told him so many things at so many moments, could have come for him at Privet Drive, looked at him at his hearing, taught him occlumency himself, as he will explain to him. What good are his words now that Sirius is gone? And it is cold comfort. Like, you could have spoken to me anytime, and now I don't want to speak to you. Right. 
but you're going to force me to listen to you. This, again, is like an incredible encapsulation of that feeling of being a teenager of like, I want to live my life. Why can't what I want be important in this moment? And this authority figure being like, yes, that's important, but I have to tell you this other thing. Right. And the consistency of Harry never being in control, but the contrast in how he is never in control. All year long, he just wants truth and he can't get it. Now he just wants to walk away and Dumbledore won't let him have that either. You will, said Dumbledore sadly, because you are not nearly as angry with me as you ought to be. If you were to attack me as I know you are close to doing, I would like to have thoroughly earned it. Always with the flex. (laughs) (laughs) Harry is not the only one in the room who's a prisoner of his own remorse. Dumbledore unburdens himself, revealing the depths of his own regret. It is my fault that Sirius died, said Dumbledore clearly, or I should say almost entirely my fault. I will not be so arrogant as to claim responsibility for the whole. It's a great line. Wow. Sirius was a brave, clever, and energetic man, and such men are not usually content to sit at home in hiding while they believe others to be in danger. We have discussed Sirius's recklessness at length, the culpability that he carries. But Dumbledore's words here force us to consider whether it could have been any other way, just as Harry could never have failed to act. After seeing the image of Sirius bound in his mind, so too Sirius could never have failed to act after learning that Harry had been lured into a trap. They're marauders, whether or not they have a map. But Dumbledore knows that, and that compounds his miscalculation. Quote, Nevertheless, you should never have believed for an instant that there was any necessity for you to go to the Department of Mysteries tonight. If I had been open with you, Harry, as I should have been, you would have known a long time ago that Voldemort might try and lure you to the Department of Mysteries, and you would never have been tricked into going there tonight, and Sirius would not have had to come after you. That blame lies with me and with me alone. There's almost a need to Dumbledore's contrition, an insistence that he be held accountable by Harry and by himself. Dumbledore asks Harry to please sit, and as Harry makes his way across the wreckage strewn off as Phineas speaks, am I to understand, said Phineas Nigella slowly from Harry's left, that my great-great-grandson, the last of the blacks, is dead? Yes, Phineas, said Dumbledore. I don't believe it, said Phineas brusquely. Harry turned his head in time to see Phineas marching out of his portrait and knew that he had gone to visit his other painting in Grimald Place. He would walk, perhaps, from portrait to portrait, calling for Sirius through the house. Phineas's beliefs are ingrained across several lifetimes now. He was never going to see eye to eye with his great-great-grandson Sirius, not unless Sirius was going to come over to the side of blood purity, and that was not happening. There was never, ever, ever going to be a reconciliation there. But... While Sirius was alive, there was at least a chance, at least a possibility of another chapter in the noble and most ancient House of Black. And that is a different but no less devastating kind of remorse. And also, this passage is an incredible example of Rowling's confidence with perspective. Yes. And how far she's come as a writer, just in her craft. You understand what Phineas is doing maybe from Harry's point of view. This is what Harry thinks Phineas must be doing. Right. But we don't actually know. But you trust it fully as a reader. You trust it fully. And it's you're so grounded in Harry's perspective that, yes, that's what he must be doing. That's incredible. Dumbledore begins to tell Harry everything. Or so we think. We will learn throughout Prince, when Dumbledore brings Harry into his memory-driven plan, that he did not, in this moment, share his Horcrux suspicions. 
And we will learn, of course, at the end of Deathly Hallows, right along with Harry, who's perusing those fibers of fact about his fate a year after Dumbledore has died, how much the headmaster always held back. But even with all that will remain unsaid here, there is still so much to finally share. Quote, Harry, I owe you an explanation, an explanation of an old man's mistakes. For I see now that what I have done and not done with regard to you bears all the hallmarks of the failings of age. And here it is, the line that Jason referenced a few minutes earlier. Youth cannot know how age thinks and feels, but old men are guilty if they forget what it was to be young. Ooh, it gives me a chill. And I seem to have forgotten lately. For so long, readers and Harry alike have looked to Dumbledore as a man defined by his experience. As little as Harry knows about Dumbledore's life, as much as he will come to regret not asking, he knows that this man has lived and loved and learned. He knows how much he's achieved. But what is the other side of that? Experience breeds perspective, yes, but perspective can breed distance. The ability to calculate at the cost of remembering what it felt like to be on the other side of that math. And as the sun rises, Harry observes the deep lines in Dumbledore's face. The physical indications, the marks, that have both positioned him to make so many decisions, to impact so many lives, and also that have removed him too far from one of the first questions that any of us ever learn to ask. What do we owe to each other? Absent the ability to study T.M. Scanlon with Cheedy in Michael's neighborhood, Dumbledore plows on, beginning first necessarily with things about which Harry is already aware. A fact that Harry's still in no mood to suffer through idle talk reminds him. Dumbledore tells Harry that he's known or at least suspected since the night that Harry became the boy who lived, what the scar upon his head meant. Though the connection between Harry and Voldemort allowed Harry to sense Voldemort's presence and emotions. How that bridge has intensified since Voldemort returned to his full body and powers. How he feared that Voldemort would discover this connection, which happened when Harry observed Nagini's attack on Mr. Weasley. Yes, yeah, Snape told me, Harry muttered. Professor Snape, Harry, Dumbledore corrected him quietly. But did you not wonder why it was not I who explained this to you? Why I did not teach you occlumency? Why I had not so much as looked at you for months? Well, Harry has in fact been wondering exactly that. This question, this concern, has eaten away at him all year, making him feel like an observer in the theater of his own life, abandoned by his mentor, mistrusted, ill-used. It caused him to doubt his friends and himself. It is among their greatest shared regrets. The reason we learn that Dumbledore has been avoiding Harry is that he was afraid the Dark Lord, after learning about the connection he shared with Harry, would seek to exploit it. And this happened. He worried, he continues, that if Voldemort knew Dumbledore and Harry were closer than just headmaster and pupil, Harry would be an even riper target for the Dark Lord. That Voldemort surely would seek to use Harry as a means to spy on Dumbledore to possess Harry in order to make him do his bidding and perhaps to force Dumbledore to sacrifice the possessed Harry in hopes of ending Voldemort's rise, thus vanquishing the enemy. Despite what this decision cost, Dumbledore stands by the logic. 
from the book. On those rare occasions when we had close contact, I thought I saw a shadow of him stir behind your eyes. I was trying in distancing myself from you to protect you, an old man's mistake. And Harry thinks back to how he felt when he met Dumbledore's eye after the attack on Mr. Weasley, how he felt when Dumbledore briefly touched him before Dumbledore's escape, the snake within, ready to rear and strike. He finds it, after the night's events, impossible to care about this. Every day this year, as he wondered why his friends were keeping him in the dark as he ran down the corridor in his dreams, as he failed to learn to close his mind, he craved some kind of clarity, some kind of guidance about what he was doing, but he's already walked into the belly of the beast. He's lost Sirius. None of it mattered, he thinks, of this long-awaited reveal. But Dumbledore continues. After Sirius told him that Harry had felt Voldemort awaken inside him the night of the attack on Arthur, his fears confirmed. He says, in an attempt to arm you against Voldemort's assaults on your mind, I arranged occlumency lessons with Professor Snape. Dumbledore explains to Harry that once he saw Rookwood telling Voldemort what the Order already knew, that only those about whom a prophecy is made can retrieve it, his occlumency became, quote, a matter of even greater urgency. Urgency! This was not a precaution, an effort to get ahead on endgame defenses. This was unavoidably essential. And yet Dumbledore trusted it to a 15-year-old boy and a broken man, drawn together at this moment in time only by their loathing of each other. Dumbledore's ability to trust, to see the best in people, to give second chances when few would, is one of his most admirable traits. But in this case, it was also another mistake. Old men are guilty if they forget what it was to be young, yes. And the trusting are guilty if they forget what it was like to be mistrusting. As Harry takes this in, the guilt presses against his heart. Quote, I didn't practice. I didn't bother. I could have stopped myself having those dreams. Hermione kept telling me to do it. If I had, he'd never have been able to show me where to go. And Sirius wouldn't. Sirius wouldn't. He can't complete the thought. This is the kind of regret that stays with a person forever. And as soon as Harry admits to his failing, he feels the most human of compulsions a need to justify himself. He tells Dumbledore that he tried to confirm whether Sirius was home, that he spoke to Creature. Creature lied, Dumbledore tells him. Harry is not his master, though, of course, that will soon change. Mm -hmm. The elf could deceive him without even needing to punish himself. He led Harry to the ministry on purpose. Quote, Creature has been serving more than one master for months. How? How can this be? Harry wants to know. Well, when Harry and the Weasley kids arrived at Grimmauld Place by Portkey after Arthur's attack, Sirius told Creature, out! He meant out of the kitchen, out of the general area. But Creature took it literally and left the house. He made contact with Narcissa Malfoy, quote, the only Black family member for whom he had any respect left. Harry feels sick. He remembers the way that Creature's absence at the time struck him, the feeling in his gut that told him something was amiss. But Harry didn't trust his gut then. He didn't push the point. Conversely, he trusted his gut to the point of recklessness after he saw Sirius in the ministry. So what is he supposed to think now? Mm -hmm. Should he have listened to his instincts more or less? This is not an easy answer for him or for anyone. But that, of course, is part of the tragedy of Dumbledore's distance. Harry has not yet reached apotheosis. He can't get there alone. No one can. We speak often of the hero's burden, the soul-dampening belief that one must enter into the darkness alone. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
Remember what Dumbledore said to his students after Cedric's death? Lord Voldemort's gift for spreading discord and enmity is very great. We can fight it only by showing an equally strong bond of friendship and trust. Differences of habit and language are nothing at all if our aims are identical and our hearts are open. The burdens of prophecy are nothing either if our aims are identical and our hearts are Mm -hmm. open. But silence is a closed door. Harry doesn't understand how Dumbledore knows all this about Creature. Dumbledore explains that after Harry's coded message, coded in quotation marks, Snape contacted Sirius to confirm that he was home. From the book, I should explain that members of the Order of the Phoenix have more reliable methods of communicating than the fire in Dolores Umbridge's office. Yes, you should, and you should have done that a little earlier, my friend. But that's fine. This one really great. Actual, practical intel. Actionable. The kind of knowledge and tool that could have prevented so much. Hey, here's a means of contact in the Order should you ever need it. Just make sure no one finds this. Dumbledore goes on. When Harry failed to return from the forest... Snape grew worried that Harry had set off to rescue Sirius and alerted other Order members. Moody, Tonks, Kingsley, and Lupin were at headquarters and agreed to go help Harry. Snape asked Sirius to stay behind, to tell Dumbledore, who was due at Grimmauld Place any moment, what had occurred. And we can deduce, even though he doesn't say it, to keep Sirius safe, as had been the goal all year. Sirius could not heed this request. Surely, with his godson in danger, he's not going to stay at home. We discussed his recklessness at length yesterday, the foolishness of this breach, but also the boundless love that meant that things were never going to go any other way, just as Harry could not rest once the prospect of Sirius's pain had entered his mind. Neither could Sirius sit back as others went to Harry's aid. He tasked Creature with reporting to Dumbledore. Quote, and so it was that when I arrived in Grimmauld Place shortly after they had all left for the ministry, it was the elf who told me, laughing fit to burst, where Sirius had gone. Man, I remember reading that for the first time. Yes. We learn that Creature told Narcissa, as much as his enchantments binding him to Sirius and the protections in place for the Order of the Phoenix would allow, which still enabled him to share something essential, something that Voldemort could exploit. Like what, said Harry? This is crushing. Like the fact that the person Sirius cared most about in the world was you, said Dumbledore quietly. Like the fact that you were coming to regard Sirius as a mixture of father and brother. Voldemort knew already, of course, that Sirius was in the Order, that you knew where he was. But Creature's information made him realize that the one person whom you would go to any lengths to rescue was Sirius Black. There is no salve for this infliction. No words, no truth that can ever erase what Harry just heard. The very thing that makes him such a worthy hero, the very thing that Dumbledore is always telling him is the source of his strength, was corrupted here, turned against him. His full heart and capacity for such warmth and compassion warped into a net that ensnared him. In many ways, not letting this realization forever undo him is Harry's greatest achievement. Mm -hmm. What happened today, what he learned today, will stay with him forever. The remorse embedded in the very essence of his being, but he does not ultimately succumb to despair. He does not, as Dumbledore warned him so long ago, dwell. He lives. The Malfoys, we learn, told Creature that he needed to prevent Sirius from communicating with Harry about his vision. So Creature, this is awful. Terrible. Injured Buckbeak, which is a terrible look for our guy Creature. (laughs) Sirius was tending to Buckbeak when Harry called and allowing Creature to lie undetected about where Sirius was. From the book, there seemed to be very little air in Harry's lungs. His breathing was quick and shallow. Creature, of course, 
did not want to share any of this, but as Dumbledore says, I am a sufficiently accomplished legilimens myself to know when I am being lied to. And I persuaded him to tell me the full story before I left for the Department of Mysteries. This is pretty haunting to hear. Legilimency is an invasion of another's mind. And that persuaded him language in particular can't help but recall the way Voldemort was able to retrieve secret information from Bertha Jorkins. Shouts to my gal, Bertha Jorkins. <laughs> Creature who is not reduced to a lifeless shell, <laughs> mercifully. <laughs> but this is another reminder of the tax of war and the extent to which Dumbledore is willing to go to win to push the envelope in order to win. Uh-huh. Harry can't believe that Hermione kept telling everyone to be kind to Creature. And it's an understandable reaction. Again, Harry's a young man. And it's easier to focus on the wrongdoing of one of the seeming villains than to assess the blame or the responsibility of someone on the side of good. And this leads to one of Dumbledore's stronger displays of character. She was quite right, Harry, said Dumbledore, when he says that I can't believe that Hermione said to be nice to him. He continues, I warned Sirius when we adopted 12 Grimaud Place as our headquarters that Creature must be treated with kindness and respect. I also told him that Creature could be dangerous to us. I do not think that Sirius took me very seriously or that he ever saw Creature as a being with feelings as acute as a human's. Traumatized as he is, Harry's inability to save Sirius's life morphs here into Harry becoming a snarling protector of Sirius's name in death. He warns Dumbledore not to speak of his godfather this way, not to blame him. Creature is what he has been made by wizards, Harry, said Dumbledore. Yes, he is to be pitied. He's been enslaved, forced to do the bidding of a man he loathed who treated him unkindly, and that's being charitable. Harry screams at Dumbledore, don't talk about Sirius like that. He thinks to himself that Dumbledore didn't understand Sirius at all, his bravery, how long he had suffered. Hearing Dumbledore imply that his godfather contributed in any small way to his own demise feels like an attack on his memory, on what's left of him, and it's causing Harry to react irrationally, emotionally. Harry lashes out. He says, what about Snape? Quote, you're not talking about him, are you? Well, he never is, is he? Well, I mean, it's, it's for a reason. <laughs> Quote, when I told him Voldemort had Sirius, he just sneered at me as usual. Dumbledore rightly points out that Snape could do nothing out of the ordinary in the presence of Dolores Umbridge. To do so would be to risk exposing his membership in the Order of the Phoenix to compromise his position as spy in Voldemort's camp. And as Dumbledore reminds Harry, Snape contacted Grimald Place as soon as he could. What's more? We learn that he provided Umbridge with fake Veritaserum when she wanted to interrogate Harry. But Harry's pain needs somewhere to go, needs some target, or his regret will pull him further inward. Quote, he felt a savage pleasure in blaming Snape. And he wants, needs Dumbledore to agree with him. Snape, Snape goaded Sirius about staying in the house. He, he made out Sirius was a coward, Harry says. Of course, Harry will never get Dumbledore to agree with him about Snape, nor will Dumbledore ever get the same from Harry. This divide will remain through this conversation, through the memory study and the Horcrux hunt, through Dumbledore's death and Snape's deep cover, until Snape's own memories reveal the truth to Harry at last. Here, Dumbledore says only this, Sirius was much too old and clever to have allowed such feeble taunts to hurt him. But this isn't true. Mm -hmm. And what's more, it isn't fair. There is no age limit on feeling judged, on being pushed, on being reactive. That's just human nature. And Harry, now desperate to cast off some of his remorse by blaming Snape, tells Dumbledore, quote, Snape stopped giving me occlumency lessons. He threw me out of his office. Harry 
unencumbered amid his rage, parrots Ron's theory. How does Dumbledore know that Snape wasn't really opening up Harry's mind further for Voldemort? I trust Severus Snape, said Dumbledore simply. But I forgot, another old man's mistake, that some wounds run too deep for the healing. I thought Professor Snape could overcome his feelings about your father. I was wrong. Dumbledore is trying desperately to bridge the gap with Harry, to bring him back in not only to the circle of trust, but to a sense of peace and understanding. Yet the secret of Snape's love for Lily and pledge to protect Harry is tied up in another promise, one that Dumbledore made to Snape to never tell. Quote, this must be between us. Swear it. I cannot bear, especially Potter's son. I want your word. My word, Severus, that I shall never reveal the best of you. If you insist, we will witness that exchange in Deathly Hallows. Here, when Dumbledore speaks of wounds that run too deep for the healing, he's referencing James and Snape. But of course, Snape's remorse over Lily is really what forever bound Dumbledore. Harry brings it back to Sirius. So it's okay for Snape to hate James, but not okay for Sirius to hate Creature. It's basically what Harry says. Dumbledore replies, Sirius did not hate Creature. He regarded him as a servant unworthy of much interest or notice. Indifference and neglect often do much more damage than outright dislike. And Harry knows this all too well. Indifference and neglect defined his childhood. When Dumbledore says, Creature was a living reminder of the home Sirius had hated, Harry seizes his opening, insisting that Dumbledore making Sirius stay in Grimwald Place, a home he hated, exacerbated Sirius's pain, made him rash, which it did. Mm-hmm. And Dumbledore's reply is devastating. I was trying to keep him alive, and we should never, ever lose sight of this. If Dumbledore was malicious or cruel, it would be easy to judge him. But he's kind, he's well-intentioned, he's determined, after an early life of mistakes, to fight for justice, equality, and good. And he so often seems like a god, but he is fallible, he's flawed, he's just like the rest of us, he's a human being. He tried his very best here. That's at the heart of why he's such a compelling, masterful character. This story would be extremely boring if you were not, at times, maddened by what the characters do. He isn't a character. He's a person. He's trying hard to do right, to honor his duties and fight for what he believes. But he makes mistakes. And because of his stature, because of the scope of his ambitions, those mistakes, when they occur, are disastrous. Harry's reply to that defense is equally gutting. People don't like being locked up. You did it to me all last summer. From the book, Dumbledore closed his eyes, buried his face in his long-fingered hands. Harry watched him. But this uncharacteristic sign of exhaustion or sadness or whatever it was from Dumbledore did not soften him. On the contrary, He felt even angrier that Dumbledore was showing signs of weakness. We speak often of whether Dumbledore expected too much. Mm -hmm. Characters talk about it too. Recall what we'll hear from Snape and Hallows. You refuse to tell me everything, yet you expect that small service of me. You take a great deal for granted, Dumbledore. Yet here, the reverse is also true. Harry's expecting too much of Dumbledore. What he's describing as weakness is humanity. What he's asking for isn't actually possible. And yet... Harry's point needs to be made, needs to be heard. His years of private drive were filled with neglect and abuse. He was forced to live in a spider-laden cupboard under the stairs, battered by the Dursley's scorn, never knowing love or friendship. And Dumbledore put him there. And despite what that decision cost Harry, Dumbledore stands by that logic. And he is ready, at last, to explain why. It is time, he said, for me to tell you what I should have told you five years ago, Harry. Please sit down. I'm going to tell you everything. I ask only a little patience. You will have your chance to rage at me and to do whatever you like when I have finished. I will not stop you. He says that he knew he was condemning Harry to, quote, 10 dark and difficult years. And that is 
quite an admission. Ever the teacher, Dumbledore then poses a question. You might ask, and with good reason, why it had to be so. Why could some wizarding family not have taken you in? Many, as he notes, would have been thrilled, honored to do so. His answer, he says, is that he had one priority, to keep Harry alive. Quote, you were in more danger than perhaps anyone but myself realized. Again, nice little flex here. Because, as we will soon learn, of the prophecy, he notes that some of Voldemort's supporters, many nearly as dangerous as he, were still out there, and that he had to plan for the future as well as the present. Dumbledore, like Hagrid, like anyone paying an ounce of attention, so in other words, not corn fudge, never believed that Voldemort had gone for good. Dumbledore was sure that Voldemort would try to kill Harry again. Unlike Voldemort, Dumbledore respects his enemies. Mm -hmm. He acknowledges their abilities, and he never took Voldemort's capabilities lightly. Quote, I knew that Voldemort's knowledge of magic is perhaps more extensive than any wizard alive. Dumbledore found Tom Riddle at the orphanage. He brought him to Hogwarts. He watched him study and bloom, forming suspicions in his mind all the while, sure. He saw that handsome young boy turn into a reptilian beast, pursuing power at all costs. He never deluded himself that he'd be easy to thwart. But I knew, too, where Voldemort was weak, and so I made my decision. You would be protected by an ancient magic of which he knows, which he despises, and which he always, therefore, underestimated to his cost. I am speaking, of course, of the fact that your mother died to save you. She gave you a lingering protection he never expected, a protection that flows in your veins to this day. I put my trust, therefore, in your mother's blood. I delivered you to her sister, her only remaining relative. Better Dumbledore reasoned that Harry is alive and secure than happy but vulnerable to Voldemort's predations. Harry's life, Albus knew, would be dangerous enough. Harry says, she doesn't love me, of his aunt. Dumbledore says, but she took you. She may have taken you grudgingly, furiously, unwillingly, bitterly, yet she took you. And in doing so, she sealed the charm I placed upon you. Your mother's sacrifice made the bond of blood the strongest shield I could give you. Lily's protection, the same one that prevented Quirrell, Voldemort's minion slash docking station, from being able to bear Harry's touch. As long as Harry can call Privet Drive home, we learn, as long as he returns there once a year, that charm remains active. And Harry cannot be harmed there. It's why Dumbledore put Harry there as youth. It's why he forces him to go back every summer rather than letting him escape to the burrow's welcoming embrace. Keeping this information from Harry for this long is perhaps Dumbledore's most indefensible decision. This is the one that breaks because why not tell him that? Why not, why not ease his mind, make his stay there a little easier to bear mm -hmm. so that he can understand it? It's hard to know why he did that. Petunia Dumbledore reveals knows about the arrangement. He says, I explained what I had done in the letter I left with you on her doorstep. Normal place to leave a baby in the middle of the night. Something clicks in Harry's mind. Wait a, wait, wait a moment. You sent that howler. You told her to remember uh -huh. it was your voice. This is an important moment. A yes. reminder that as much as there is to criticize about Dumbledore's plan and impl implementation, he was always operating to keep Harry safe. In the shadows, perhaps. In not as sensitive a way as he could have, surely. But operating with Harry's security in mind, always all the same. He returns to his confession, toasting Harry's first year, when Harry, quote, rose magnificently to the challenge that faced you in sooner, much sooner than I had anticipated. You found yourself face to face with Voldemort. You survived again. You did more. You delayed his return to full power and strength. You fought a man's fight. I was prouder of you than I can say. This is a genuinely moving moment. That pause that buildup. Any of us can relate to that. 
We want to help people. We want to be able to take away their pain. And when we see them learn and grow on their own, proving equal to their circumstances, there is fierce joy and pride. But we also have to ask ourselves, what if they didn't have to get there alone? What if we could have helped? Dumbledore continues, yet there was a flaw in this wonderful plan of mine, an obvious flaw that I knew even then might be the undoing of it all. His first test, he says, came when Harry lay recovering in the hospital wing. And Harry doesn't understand what he's hearing right now. Dumbledore says, don't you remember asking me as you lay in the hospital wing why Voldemort had tried to kill you when you were a baby? Harry nods. Ought I to have told you then? My guy, that's what we've been saying the whole time. Harry's heart is racing as circuitously Dumbledore explains. Explains why he didn't tell Harry at 11 in his first year. You were too young, much too young. Why he held back when Harry was 12. Essentially, 12 isn't much better than 11. Though he does say, once again, you acquitted yourself beyond Mm -hmm. my wildest dreams. And Harry still doesn't understand where Dumbledore is going. And then at last, the headmaster comes out with a quote, I cared about you too much, said Dumbledore simply. I cared more for your happiness than your knowing the truth, more for your peace of mind than my plan, more for your life than the lives that might be lost if the plan failed. In other words, I acted exactly as Voldemort expects we fools who love to act. This moment is the series in miniature. Love is what differentiates Harry and Voldemort, the ultimate strength, shown here as a potential liability. What keeps it from being one? The series' other key, choice. What decisions do we make when we love? What do we do to protect others, to protect ourselves? It's ironic, really, Dumbledore's actions here. Dumbledore's message to Harry is that, and has always been that, love is the great conqueror of hatred. It's Harry's capacity for love, his openness with his feelings that make him the perfect foe for Voldemort. Indeed, as we saw in the ministry, it was Harry's longing for Sirius, which drove the Dark Lord out of his body and mind. But Dumbledore himself didn't heed this in a way Mm -hmm. because he loves Harry and didn't want him to suffer more, to be more in danger, he pushed him away, thus making the outcome he feared more likely. And this is actually one of the great devices in drama. It's a classic tragic device, and Rowling deploys it here to evoke heartbreaking sadness. Dumbledore continues, is there a defense? Yes, I defy anyone who has watched you as I have, and I have watched you more closely than you can have imagined, not to want to save you more pain than you had already suffered. Remember this moment, remember this line, when you doubt Dumbledore later on, and you will be justified in doing so, but try to hang on to this. When his choices seem so calculated, even cruel, When we witness Snape accusing him of raising Harry, quote, like a pig for slaughter, remember the sincerity of this affection. And remember, too, what he says seconds later, quote, I never dreamed that I would have such a person on my hands. In the moment after Harry learns the full truth at last in Hallows, he thinks to himself, quote, Dumbledore's betrayal was almost nothing. The road back from that word, betrayal, is The sentiment that Dumbledore just conveyed right here. Such a person. Uncommonly strong, good, brave. Someone that Dumbledore knew would be willing to sacrifice himself and thus able to return. Dumbledore continues, by Harry's third year, his excuses were running out. Quote, young you might be, but you had proved you were exceptional. Yet he could not bring himself to trouble Harry further after Sirius had finally entered his life. And then came the Triwizard Tournament. Cedric's murder, Harry's near death, Voldemort returned. Quote, I did not tell you, though I knew now Voldemort had returned, I must do it soon. And now tonight I know you have long been ready for the knowledge I have kept from you for so long. 
because you have proved that I should have placed the burden upon you before this. My only defense is this. I have watched you struggling under more burdens than any student who has ever passed through this school, and I could not bring myself to add another, the greatest one of all. Consider again that question. What do we owe to each other? Protection, yes. Comfort and safety, yes. But also truth, honesty. And here it is at last. Finally, Dumbledore arrives at the reason Voldemort murdered the Potters and tried to murder Harry, the prophecy, which Voldemort knew about and acted upon, believing he was fulfilling its terms. Dumbledore says he discovered to his cost that he was mistaken. Since returning to his body and since Harry escaped him yet again, he has been obsessively hunting after it, desperate to hear it in full. From the book again, this is the weapon he has been seeking so assiduously since his return, the knowledge of how to destroy you. Shell-shocked by the events of the night and everything he's hearing, finally, Harry says the prophecy was destroyed during the Battle of the Ministry. But that was just the recording. Dumbledore Mm -hmm. was there for the live show, baby. (laughs) Dumbledore tells Harry how, quote, on a cold, wet night 16 years ago in a room above the bar at the Hogshead Inn, end quote, he met an applicant for the post of divination professor purely as a courtesy to her ancestry. The interview... Dumbledore says, was disappointing, but did not remain so. The headmaster crosses to the pensive, touches his wand to his temple, withdraws a memory, and places it in the stone bowl. Sybil Trelawney, younger, draped in shawls, rises from the bowl and speaks in the harsh stentorian tones that Harry heard her use back in his third year. The one with power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches, born to those who have thrice defied him, born as the seventh month dies, and the Dark Lord will mark him as his equal, but he will have the power the Dark Lord knows not. And either must die at the hand of the other, for neither can live while the other survives. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord will be born as the seventh month dies. Oh, did I get the job? (laughs) (laughs) Tough look for a girl. As Trelawney's form sinks back into the basin, quote, the silence within the office was absolute. When Harry brings himself to speak, gone is the rage from earlier. Gone, even for the moment, is his despair. Professor Dumbledore, Harry said very quietly, for Dumbledore, still staring at the pensive, seemed completely lost in thought. It, did that mean, what did that mean? He's just heard mm-hmm. that it is his destiny, and we'll return to that word in a minute, his burden to rid the world of this evil. And yet in this moment, he sounds like a boy asking a teacher for help. It is a stunning contrast, an illumination of the immensity of Harry's task. He continues, it means me? Dumbledore explains that. Actually, it could have meant Harry or Neville. Both were born at the end of July, both to parents who had escaped Voldemort three times. The prophecy was labeled with Harry's name only after Voldemort attacked him. Harry asks if that means it might not be him, and there is nothing cowardly about the question. It is the last vestige of hope, of any semblance of a normal life for him. And he clings to it as anyone would. And then it slips away forever with the ensuing words. I am afraid, said Dumbledore slowly, as though every word cost him a great effort, that there is no doubt that it is you. The final identifying feature seals it. In choosing him, Voldemort marked Harry as his equal. And the fact that he chose him says so much. And as Harry protests, but he might have chosen wrong. He might have marked the wrong person. Dumbledore explains what Voldemort's choice signifies. Despite his pureblood mania, his bigotry, his prejudice, he felt most threatened by the half-blood boy, not the pure blood. 
Throughout the series, Harry has been haunted by the similarities that he's noticed between himself Mm -hmm. and his good friend Tom. Good friend. Tom, his good friend, pointed out as much to him in chamber observing the similarities between them, saying Harry surely couldn't have failed to notice. To learn that the adult version of Voldemort felt this too, just about the idea of Harry— not a 12-year-old boy standing in front of him in the Chamber of Secrets, is a stunning stroke. The threat was not the boy Voldemort wished he could have been, Mm -hmm. born to the pureblood family, but rather the one he was most like. An acknowledgement here of the inescapable pull of the past and of our identities. The idea of shared history from Dumbledore. Quote, he saw himself in you before he had ever seen you. And in marking you with that scar, he did not kill you as he intended, but gave you powers and a future which have fitted you to escape him not once, but four times so far. Harry astutely asks why Voldemort didn't wait to see whether Neville or Harry grew up to be the bigger threat. And we learned that his incomplete information meant he only heard the first part. Nothing about marking this boy as his equal. Nothing about power the Dark Lord knows not. Here, Harry protests. But I don't, said Harry in a strangled voice. I haven't any powers he hasn't got. I couldn't fight the way he did tonight. I can't possess people or or kill them. Dumbledore mentions the locked room in the department. He says, it contains a force that is at once more wonderful and more terrible than death, than human intelligence, than forces of nature. That's the power that Harry has in droves and Voldemort lacks. He continues, that power took you to save Sirius tonight. That power made it so Voldemort could not possess Harry. Again, in the end, it mattered not that you could not close your mind. It was your heart that saved you. Love. Harry cannot bear to think about Sirius at the moment. And so he asks more questions. He asks about the end, about neither being able to live while the other survives. So does that mean that one of us has got to kill the other one in the end? Yes, says Dumbledore. One of Rowling's truest masterstrokes is employing a prophecy in a story about the paramounts of choice. What is a prophecy but a proclamation of destiny? Another person speaking your future into existence, telling you what must be so. What is that glass orb, that memory of Trelawney, other than the promise of predestination? But that is not what this story is about. It is about deciding who you are, what you want to do, who you want to spend your life with. In Half-Blood Prince, Dumbledore and Harry will scream their way to this very conclusion when Dumbledore pushes and pushes back against Harry harping on the prophecy. Of course you've got to, Dumbledore says, but not because of the prophecy, because you yourself will never rest until you've tried. That exchange will lead to one of Harry's signature moments of clarity and growth and purpose. Quote, but he understood at last what Dumbledore had been trying to tell him. It was, he thought, the difference between being dragged into the arena to face a battle to the death and walking into the arena with your head held high. (laughs) I made it further than I thought I would, honestly. (laughs) Uh, I love this part. Some people perhaps would say that there was little to choose between the two ways, but Dumbledore knew. And so do I, thought Harry, with a rush of fierce pride, and so did my parents, that there was all the difference in the world. But there's a long road to travel to that moment, a road paved in pain and tears. And as the voices of students in the school begin to filter into Dumbledore's office, Harry is amazed that anyone could go about their day unburdened by Sirius's death. And Dumbledore makes one final confession. You may perhaps have wondered why I never chose you as a prefect. 
I must confess that I've rather thought you had enough responsibility to be going on with. The passage continues. Harry looked up at him and saw a tear trickling down Dumbledore's face into his long silver beard. Woo! One of the absolute best chapters in the series. Just incredible. It's amazing. Chapter 38, The Second War Begins. Some good news. Daily Prophet is finally hip to Google AMP and Twitter trends. <laughs> he who must not be named returns. Confirmed by none other than Corn fucking fudge. It is with great regret that I must confirm that the wizard styling himself Lord, well, you know who I mean, is alive and among us again, said Fudge, looking tired and flustered as he addressed reporters. <laughs> oh, and uh, the Dementors have revolted and are currently taking direction from the Lord thingy. Hermione's reading this aloud to Harry, Ron, Ginny, Neville, and Luna in the hospital wing, and there's something so stirring about this scene. The band together, supporting each other, taking in the news in each other's company. Ron still has deep welts on his forearms from the brain. From the book. According to Madame Pomfrey, thoughts could leave deeper scarring than almost anything else. Again, this is JK at her best, a sentence in the middle of a scene about something else that taps into the heart of the human condition and the foundation of existence. Hermione, meanwhile, is taking 10 potions a day to recover from whatever that curse was. And it's no exaggeration to say they're all lucky to be alive. They catch up with the happenings at the school, how Flitwick roped off a section of Fred and George's swamp as a monument to their magic. Their magic's actually good. Kids are good, I gotta say. How Dumbledore single-handedly rescued Umbridge from the centaurs. How Ferenz and Trelawney will be splitting coursework moving forward. When the subject quickly and naturally shifts from divination professors to the branch of magic itself to the hall of prophecies that they breached, Harry's heart begins to race. He hasn't told anyone about the prophecy, not even Ron and Hermione. Quote, he was not ready to see their expressions when he told them that he must be either murderer or victim. We see in this moment how Dumbledore could have fallen into the trap that he did. He wanted to spare Harry, just as Harry now wants to spare his friends. Harry, to escape this perilous moment, excuses himself to go visit Hagrid. Harry isn't sure whether he wants to be around people. When he is, he wants to be alone. When he's alone, he craves companionship. As he's walking to visit Hagrid, he runs into Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle. You're going to pay, said Malfoy in a voice barely louder than a whisper. I'm going to make you pay for what you've done to my father. Harry mocks him, dismisses him, but we'll see next year in Half-Blood Prince that this was not a hollow boast. Malfoy will become a Death Eater, leading the charge to bring Voldemort's followers into Hogwarts, attempting to assassinate Dumbledore, ultimately coming face-to-face with the headmaster atop the Astronomy Tower. When Draco says that Lucius will be out of prison soon, now that the Dementors have rebelled, Harry says, yeah, I suspect he will. Quote, still, at least everyone knows what scumbags they are now. Malfoy goes for his wand, but Harry's faster. Before he can get off a spell, Snape emerges. Quote, and at the sight of him, Harry felt a great rush of hatred beyond anything he felt toward Malfoy. Whatever Dumbledore said, he would never forgive Snape. Never. Harry will one day. Name his youngest son after Severus Snape, Albus Severus. A shining testament to the resiliency of the human spirit, to our capacities to grow and forgive. But in this moment, that feels like an impossible future. Snape tries to take points and then dunks on Gryffindor for not having any. And then, is that Minerva McGonagall's music? This is... (laughs) An amazing showing from Medallion here. Truly. It's a little dirty, but I'll take it. Add some more? Yeah. 
Snape greets her with enthusiasm and affection, another one of those little moments that fans look to when searching for clues about his true allegiance. She gives Potter and his friends 50 points apiece for, quote, alerting the world to the return of you-know-who, which is a really admirable commitment to keeping the point shaving and adding in check enough so that you don't tip off the compliance officials. McGonagall dismisses him, and he sets off for Haggard's, past the stairs and waves of his fellow students, all eager to prove now that they do believe him. Hagrid, who's been hiding in the mountains, asks Harry if he's feeling okay. Harry's hoping to avoid discussing Sirius, but after a few false starts of small talk, getting grop a lady friend and the like, <laughs> Hagrid plows him. Look, Hagrid leaned toward him across the table. I don't see you as dead. He died in battle, and this is where he want to go. He didn't want to go at all, said Harry angrily. And there's something so painfully innocent and pure about this reply, the longing that we all feel to explain the unfair, the unthinkable. From the book, Haggard bowed his great shaggy head. Nah, I don't reckon he did. But still, Harry, he was never one around at home. And other people were fighting. He couldn't live with himself if he had to gone to hell. And of course, on some level, Harry knows right. that's true, but he doesn't want to hear it. He's not ready to hear He's it. He's not ready to hear that. He springs up and makes an excuse to go. He can't do this yet. He can't talk about Sirius. He ignores again his bellowing classmates as he passes, wishing for solitude, thinking that a few days before he would have given anything to have their support. He walks to sit by the lake, shaded from view. I'll just say in advance, this entire sequence shreds me every time I read it. This is among the highest instant tier success rate sections for The me. end of this book is incredible. Quote, perhaps the reason he wanted to be alone was because he had felt isolated from everybody since his talk with Dumbledore. An invisible barrier separated him from the rest of the world. He was, he had always been, a marked man. It was just that he had never really understood what that meant. Ever since Harry entered the Wizarding World, he's felt on stage, apart, mm -hmm. famous for something that he couldn't remember, couldn't control. He's longed to distance himself from his fame to experience just one day as a normal boy. He's always known on some level that such a dream was futile, but now it is clear, definitive, final. Quote, and yet sitting here on the edge of the lake with the terrible weight of grief dragging at him, with the loss of Sirius so raw and fresh inside, he could not muster any great sense of fear. I'm a mess. Oh, it was sunny and the grounds around him were full of laughing people. And even though he felt as distant from them as though he belonged to a different race, it was still very hard to believe as he sat here that his life must include or end in murder. Harry has never understood the stakes so clearly, never understood so well the role that he has to play. And it is an isolating, miserable burden. But even that burden is made small by his grief. And as he sits at the lake and looks out to the opposite shore, he tries not to think about the time the Sirius collapsed there, the Dementor swirling. He tries not to think about his godfather at all, but he's quarantined by his despair, quarantined by thoughts of his future. Quote, the sun had fallen before he realized that he was cold. Oh, this makes me so sad just thinking of him sitting there alone like that. He got up and returned to the castle, wiping his face on his sleeve as he went. 
Harry doesn't want to go to the end of term feast, doesn't want to be the subject of another speech, another gawking session. He's packing, and as he pulls some robes out of the bottom of his trunk, he spots the package that Sirius gave him over the holiday, along with the message. Use it if you need me, all right, and he opens it. A small, square, old, dirty mirror falls out. He looks into it and sees his face. He turns it over. The message there reads, this is a two-way mirror. I've got the other. If you need to speak to me, just say my name into it. You'll appear in my mirror, and I'll be able to talk in yours. James and I used them when we were in separate detentions, and his heart begins to race. He's thinking now of the mirror of error said from the book. He was going to be able to talk to Sirius again. Right now, he knew it. He says Sirius's name into the glass and says it again. He thinks not that Sirius is dead and thus beyond reach, but that it's not working because Sirius must not have had his mirror on him when he fell. And he hurls the mirror into his trunk where it shatters to play a role again. <sighs> dun, dun, dun. More on that in the seven. This is a devastating sequence for mm-hmm. so many reasons. The bitter regret of it, of knowing, holding that mirror in his hands, reading that message that he actually had a way to reach out to Sirius the whole time. That Harry's own determination to not be the one who lured Sirius out of his house, as he promised himself he wouldn't be when Sirius handed him this over the holidays, that that prevented him from maybe finding a way to confirm that Sirius was actually okay. The despair of false hope of thinking he'd be able to speak to him now, only to have that ripped away from him. And there's something here, too, something crucial about the limits of magic. Magic is not a cure-all, and Mm -hmm. a moment like this forces us to remember that, forces us to think of the limits. Harry hurts and bleeds and mourns, just like anyone else. But there's always that extra kernel of hope that magic provides. No spell can reawaken the dead, Dumbledore told him when he came back from the graveyard last year. And yet Harry has seen his parents in the Mirror of Erised, saw echoes of them and Cedric in the graveyard. We'll see his parents in Lupin and Sirius again one day when he turns the resurrection stone. His hope here isn't foolish or false. It is sustained by the very reality of his world, his very existence. And that makes its failure to come to fruition all the more shattering. From the book, but then an idea struck him, a better idea than a mirror, a much bigger, more important idea. How had he never thought of it before? Why had he never asked? The failure of the mirror didn't deflate Harry. It inspired him. He's running with feverish desperation now. From the book again, how could it be that a place was full of ghosts whenever you didn't need one yet now? And he runs and he finds nearly headless Nick. Nick, can I ask you something? A most peculiar expression stole over nearly headless Nick's face. Harry leads him into a classroom. I can't pretend I haven't been expecting it, Nick says. And he shares that students sometimes come and find him when they suffered a loss. This is a key moment for Harry, a reminder that even amid his latest escape from Voldemort and his knowledge of the prophecy, he's still in some ways, just like so many others, subject to the same refusal to accept death is the end. Harry asks him how being a ghost works and how Nick is able to glide and talk despite being dead. For more on ghosts, check out the restricted section in our second chamber book pod. He says, people can come back, right, as ghosts? They don't have to disappear completely? Well, he added impatiently. Nick says not everyone can come back, only wizards. Oh, said Harry, and almost laughed with relief. Well, that's okay. Then the person I'm asking about is a wizard, so he can come back, right? Nick turned away from the window and looked mournfully at Harry. He won't come back. Harry is so stunned by that response that he actually says, who? And Nick says Sirius's name. Nick explains that wizards can leave an imprint of themselves, quote, to walk palely where their living selves once trod, but few wizards choose that path. 
Harry asks why, and before Nick can even answer, Harry says it doesn't matter. Sirius won't care if it's unusual, he says. He'll come back. I know he will. The passage continues. This is just devastating. And so strong was his belief that Harry actually turned his head to check the door, sure, for a split second, that he was going to see Sirius, pearly white and transparent, but beaming, walking through it toward him. This certainty that Harry feels is gutting. The kind of conviction that makes Nick's answer feel like losing Sirius all over again. He will not come back, repeated Nick quietly. He will have gone on. Nick says that he was afraid of death, that he can't explain what death is because he doesn't know. I am neither here nor there, he says. I know nothing of the secrets of death, Harry, for I chose my feeble imitation of life instead. I believe learned wizards study the matter in the Department of Mysteries. And Harry says, don't talk to me about that place. And that's the end of this exchange, the end of Harry's hope. Nick apologizes and drifts away, leaving Harry drowning under a fresh wave of grief, robbed of the prospect of seeing Sirius again, forced to process the finality of death, this helpless sensation that even in a world full of magic and possibility, there's been a failure to absolve him of his guilt, of his blame. As he walks back through the castle, he wonders if he'll ever feel cheerful again. His minute-by-minute reality right now feels like a dementor attack, a sea of despair and disappointment. That whole sequence is just devastating. He comes around a corner and sees Luna pinning a note to the board. He asks why she's not at the feast. Well, I've lost most of my possessions, said Luna serenely. People take them and hide them, you know. But as it's the last night, I really do need them back, so I've been putting up signs. He looks and sees that she's pinned a list of her missing items with a plea for their return from the book. An odd feeling rose in Harry, an emotion quite different from anger and grief that hadn't filled him since Sirius's death. It was a few moments before he realized that he was feeling sorry for Luna. He asks why people hide her things. Oh, well, I think they think I'm a bit odd, you know. Some people call me Looney Lovegood, actually. Harry looked at her, and the new feeling of pity intensified rather painfully. He then offers to help, and it's the first moment he's opted into a conversation with another person since Sirius's death, an illustration of Luna's rare and gentle soul. She's another unusual creature, different from her peers. She doesn't blend in. She's suffered too, and she awakens his compassion. She asks why he isn't at the feast, and when he says he didn't feel like it, she replies, no, I don't suppose you do. She says that Ginny told her about Sirius, and she asks about him. And Harry, quote, found that for some reason he did not mind Luna talking about Sirius. He had just remembered that she could see Thestrals. He asked her who she lost, and we learned that her mother died when Luna was nine, an experiment gone badly wrong. And Harry mumbles out an apology, and Luna says, yes, it was rather horrible. I still feel very sad about it sometimes, but I've still got dad, and anyway, it's not as though I'll never see mom again, is it? Harry, fresh off... Two letdowns, the mirror and his conversation with Nick in his quest to connect to some form of Sirius again says, isn't it? And Luna shakes her head, quote, oh, come on, you heard them just behind the veil, didn't you? Harry says, you mean, and she continues, in that room with the archway, they were just lurking out of sight. That's all. You heard them. And this idea is everything that maybe one day we can see the people we've lost again, that being gone isn't the same as being forgotten. Remember, Dumbledore's line, you think the dead we have loved ever truly leave us. Luna is reminding Harry here that they don't. Quote, 
She walked away from him, and as he watched her go, he found that the terrible weight in his stomach seemed to have lessened slightly. On the train ride home, Malfoy and his goons try to attack Harry, but big mistake, guys. Harry and his friends have been training, and also you just did that in front of a bunch of DA members. After all the curses hit them, they look like giant slugs, which I love. When Cho passes and she and Harry meet eyes, Hermione reveals that she's moved on. She's dating someone else. From the book, Harry was surprised to find this information. Did not hurt at all. Wanting to impress Cho seemed to belong to a past that was no longer quite connected with him. So much of what he had wanted before Sirius's death felt that way these days. The week that had elapsed since he had last seen Sirius seemed to have lasted much, much longer. It stretched across two universes, the one with Sirius in it and the one without. When the train arrives, Harry feels that he's never wanted to get off less, but in the station he finds a surprise. Moody, Tonks, Lupin, and the Weasleys there to greet him. They're here for a chat with the Dursleys about treating Harry well. And it's an immensely touching gesture, a reminder that while nothing and no one can fill the serious-shaped hole in Harry's heart, he's a family in love in all shapes and forms. I'm not aware that it is any of your business what goes on in my house, says Vernon unwisely. <laughs> I expect what you're not aware of would fill several books, Dursley growled Moody. They each say their piece and then say their farewells to Harry. From the book, he somehow could not find words to tell them what it meant to him to see them all ranged there on his side. It's beautiful. Just a beautiful end to this book. Devastatingly sad, but amid that loss and that pain, there's a reminder of that support and that love. So nice. It's a very good book. Mal, Dumbledore thinks very highly of binge mode, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, I mean, how would we know? He never, literally never says anything about it. <laughs> We're like, dude, just leave a rating just, can on you, iTunes. Can you just, how are we stars. doing? Are we doing okay? I will tell you when you need to know. <laughs> When you are ready. When you are ready to know how Binge Mode is doing. <laughs> oh, yes. Hold it in great esteem. So please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about Hogwarts portraits. From the moment Harry first encounters the fat lady who drawls on his first night in Hogwarts, Password... The Hogwarts portraits have been one of the clearest manifestations of magic in this world. The subjects of these paintings can flit from frame to frame within the castle, as well as interact with the living people at the school, and in some cases even transport around the world by traveling between different paintings of themselves. But speaking with the portrait of a deceased witch or wizard is not like speaking to their living selves. The power of each portrait varies depending on the interaction between painter and subject. The artist uses particular enchantments to turn an otherwise typical drawing magical, and the relative magical skill of the subject influences the interactivity of their drawn self. Even then, the subjects in a Hogwarts painting are, per J.K. Rowling on Pottermore, quote, literally and metaphorically two-dimensional. They are only representations of the living subjects as seen by the artist. This explains why so many of the portraits with which Harry interacts are caricatures. Mm -hmm. The fat lady with her indulgent taste, Violet with her gossip, Sir Cadogan with his bumbling bravado. I miss that guy. Tough look for my guy, <laughs> Sir Cadogan. <laughs> Sir Cadogan got put in storage after his very poor showing. <laughs> 
<laughs> Very tough stuff for Sir Kadogan. I hope his don- ah, donkey's wanted, keeping him company. Wanted criminals in his blood. Would you like to come in? You have the password? You have five passwords? They're on a piece of paper, Great. you said? <laughs> They're stored on the cloud? Right. Come on in. That is how. The artists viewed them, and naturally their most notable characteristics emerged. In addition to possessing their subject's personality, the portraits also copy their manner of speech and spout their favorite phrases. So our portraits would say, tough stuff, and my good friend Tom, and Megalian quite a bit. Think about Ash, the non-breathing fuckstick who doesn't quit. Remember him? <laughs> oh, yeah. From Black Mirror's Be Right Back. Miss that guy. These portraits also don't know much about their subjects' lives, nor can they hold complex conversations. There's a reason that so many of Sir Cadogan's lines are insults to the scoundrels of the Hogwarts student body, rather than anything of substance, actually meaningful responses. The portraits in the headmaster's office behave differently, though. They're richer and more complex than simple caricatures, and we see them enact considerable agency— such as when Phineas Nigelus talks to Harry, or the portrait version of Dumbledore instructs Snape from beyond the veil. Rowling has an explanation for this discrepancy. Instead of being painted in memoriam, a headmaster or headmistress is painted before death. Quote, once the portrait is completed, the headmaster or headmistress in question keeps it under lock and key, regularly visiting it in its cupboard, if so desired to teach it to act and behave exactly like themselves and imparting all kinds of useful memories and pieces of knowledge that may then be shared through the centuries with their successors in office. The headmaster portraits are thus more powerful than their counterparts strewn about the castle, but even they don't adopt the totality of their living personas. Portrait Dumbledore is clever and strategic and shows a twinkle in his eye when he beams at Harry at the end of Hallows, but he still isn't Dumbledore the man. As headmistress Minerva McGallion McGonagall tells Harry and cursed child, not canon. <laughs> it's not, guys. Well, it's, it is. <laughs> On the very fringe of the wider canon, if you must know. <laughs> Quote, portraits don't represent even half of their subjects. A head teacher's portrait is a memoir. It is supposed to be a support mechanism for the decisions I have to make. But I was advised as I took this job to not mistake the painting for the person. Even in portrait form, witches and wizards can't live forever. Jason. Yes. I know nothing of the secrets of death, for I chose my feeble imitation of podcasting instead. But I know foreshadowing, and it's time to split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Order, chapters 37 and 38. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one, Dumbledore tells Harry of Voldemort and the prophecy, quote, he knew the prophecy had been made, though he did not know its full contents. He set out to kill you when you were still a baby, believing he was fulfilling the terms of the prophecy. He discovered to his cost that he was mistaken when the curse intended to kill you backfired. We talked about this above. Mm -hmm. What we didn't talk about above is that later he specifies that he and Trelawney were interrupted by an eavesdropper. You Who just, would be? You, you can't hold a meeting at the Hogshead. No. You just can't. Too much hustle and bustle there. It's too much. <laughs> but if you are going to hold a meeting, remember, bring your own glasses. That's yeah, what Flitwick would disgusting. want. Disgusting. One of the things that Dumbledore is still withholding from Harry here in a confession that he is claiming contains, quote, everything, is that Severus Snape was the person who overheard that. As a Death Eater, he spied and then passed the contents of what he heard along to Voldemort. In other words— 
he was the one responsible for conveying the information that led Voldemort to kill Lily and James Potter. Harry will learn this, not from Dumbledore in this moment, but from Trelawney in Half-Blood Prince when she has failed to hide her sherry bottles in the room of requirement. Tough, Tough luck. luck. Tough luck for my girl Trelawney. Number two, the mirror. Because J.K. never does anything by mistake, we knew when Harry threw that mirror into his trunk, shattering it, that it would come back into play. And sure enough, he'll unearth the shard in Hallows, seeing a blue eye that he'll eventually realize, after using the mirror to secure escape from Malfoy Manor, is Aberforth Dumbledore's. Shouts to my dude, Aberforth. Number three, quote, He shed her blood, but it lives on in you and her sister. Her blood became your refuge. This is Dumbledore telling Harry about Lily and her sacrifice. Remember the gleam in Dumbledore's eye when Harry returned from the graveyard in Goblet and shared what happened there. Because it connects crucially to what we learn here about the nature of Lily's sacrifice and the nature of that magic that Dumbledore sealed. We will learn in Hallows, after Harry lives despite sacrificing himself, that in taking Harry's blood, Voldemort took Lily's sacrifice into his body, tethering in his greed Harry to the earth as long as Voldemort lived. Number four, Harry to Dumbledore. People don't like being locked up. You did it to me all last summer. And then Ron and Hermione, when they get off the train, we'll see you soon, mate. Really soon, Harry, we promise. Indeed, at the start of Prince, Harry leaves Privet Drive in the most peaceful fashion yet, and early, when Dumbledore picks him up and takes him to the borough. Peaceful for Harry, less peaceful for the the Dursleys who just get dunked on and shredded by Dumbledore. Tough look for them. As the mead knocks them in their head. Number five. Of creature, Dumbledore says, quote, his existence has been as miserable as your friend Dobby's. Despite penetrating creature's mind, Dumbledore doesn't know how true that statement really is. In Hallows, we will learn the full misery the creature suffered in the cave. First, as Voldemort's sacrificial test subject, and then as a broken elf who had to watch Regulus sacrifice himself and task creature with the mission to swap out the locket and attempt to destroy the Horcrux. Quote, from Dumbledore again to Harry. The fountain we destroyed tonight told a lie. We wizards have mistreated and abused our fellows for too long, and we are now reaping our reward. Creature's torturous existence is further devastating proof of that. Number six. After hexing Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle, the DA leave the trio oozing on the luggage rack gross. And the next time Harry's on the train, he will hide on a luggage rack to try and spy on Malfoy, and that will go very badly. Harry also wonders here what would happen if he quote, refused to get off the train. Well, guess what? Malfoy's attack at the start of next school year nearly results in exactly that. Number seven, Ron casts Harry, quote, an oddly furtive look as he tells Ginny, who is revealing that she and Michael have split and Michael's with Cho now, quote, just choose someone better next time. Dun, dun, dun. Well, she's with Dean Thomas now, but. Big fan of Dean. Love Dean. Shouts to Dean. Harry, of course. It's just a few hundred pages away from being chosen. Truly the chosen one in so many ways. Mallow, come on, you've heard them. Just beyond the podcast studio divider. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Moon Lovegood. Listen. Only a few pages of work here, but yeah. she manages to make an impact on Harry and on readers that is sincerely life-altering. She's just a very peaceful and warm spirit. 
She has an open mind and an open heart in a way that few do. You know, J.K.R. has explained that the reason that the kids who can hear the voices can hear them and and the ones who can't can is it's about do you believe in the afterlife? Are you open to concepts like that? She brings Harry such comfort. And it's an amazing thing because the nature of their exchange is really so sad. Yeah. Just like the exchange with Nick is so sad and Harry finding the mirror is so sad. It's just a sequence of despair and hopelessness. And then somehow she leaves him feeling not happy, not okay, but some sense of comfort and Mm -hmm. peace that this is part of life. And that if you find other people who understand, they can help you get through it. It's wonderful. Well, friends, we will come back. We will not have gone on. Thanks, as always, to Isaac Lee and Zach Cram and today, Bobby Wagner, our indispensable producer and researcher and stand-in producer for staying on this mortal coil with us. Our wags, our very own wags. (laughs) We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again on Monday for our discussion of the Order of the Phoenix film adaptation. Until then, remember, you may, perhaps, have wondered why we never chose you as co-hosts. We must confess that we rather thought you had enough responsibility to be going on with. So I have a, I have a job interview actually mm-hmm. next week. What is it? <laughs> I'm interviewing at, uh, this is why I want to talk to you. I'm interviewing at Hogwarts with Albus Dumbledore for a position. To, and I just wanted to know how you got your position. Do you have any tips? Okay, don't tell anybody this, but this is how 100% you get a job at Hogwarts. As he's about to leave, roll your eyes back in your head and then just start saying shit about the Dark Lord, he's coming and it's got to be vanquished, yada, yada, you know, like prophecy shit. Only this one will be able to vanquish him and I promise you, you will get a job. Really? No joke. You will get in.